This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's Monday, time for our Zoomer Squad. And our land border with the United States is open and fully vaccinated Americans can visit. This after a week where we saw significant reopening across the economy. We had live theater, we had baseball games, museums have been open for a couple of weeks, uh, not to mention indoor dining at restaurants. And this is happening as we see a huge increase in the number of cases, and that is especially true south of the border. So uh, I wonder if this is putting a big crimp in Zoomer style. Now, the vaccination rate for our demo is really high, but a lot of people are hesitant about going out and mixing with potentially unvaccinated people. And that is still a good 20% of the population or a not so good 20% of the population, if you ask me. And what about mandatory vaccination for health and education workers? That continues to be a big demand by a lot of people that the government's resisting. And the call for vaccine passports. Uh, numbers to call, what do you think? 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now let's go to David Kravitz, Vice President of Zoomer Media and Chief Membership Officer at CARP, and Bill Van Gorder, who is the Chief Operating Officer at CARP. Hey, guys, how are you? Hello, Libby. Hi, everyone. <laughs> Hi, Libby. Hi, David. Uh, so, David, is is this the right time for this reopening? We seem to be reopening just in time for this big spike, fourth wave. I think that the question can be only answered if you go back to a strategy, what are we trying to accomplish? If you're trying to accomplish um, maximum protection against infection, against picking up this virus from somebody, then you would keep the border closed. If you're trying to keep the economy going and minimize the number of deaths from COVID, then you would uh, open the border. Uh, Bill, what do you think? I think it's very worrisome for our CARP uh, members who are concerned mostly about their own health and their health of their their uh, loved ones. And the mixed messages uh, we're getting is not making them feel any better about uh, having the border uh, opened up. Most that we talk to would rather that the province was and the country were more careful uh, for a while yet until see we see what's happening having a higher uh, higher rates and uh, uh, and less vaccination uh, of uh, the Americans as they come across the border, uh, knowing that they'll want to, of course, come and enjoy uh, Ontario is something that uh, our members, uh, for the most part, aren't ready for yet. Hmm. And, you know, David, I'm reminded here in Ontario when, uh, you know, there was backtracking, but it looked like we were about to reopen schools, reopen for a week or something. This was just before the third wave. Correct. And Correct. You're, you're absolutely right. And yes, let's, no, let's not. It's that that delicate balance. And, it, and uh, um, I, I, again, I come back to what are we trying to accomplish in the first place? Well, uh, yeah, I guess that's a good question. And, uh, you know, the politicians, when you listen to them, it often sounds like they want to have it all ways, Bill. Well, they uh, they they do. They don't seem to be able to to get together uh, uh, for, uh, between the provinces across the country, even with the Americans. We're opening our border uh, today, and the Americans uh, haven't announced at the moment. Uh, August twenty first is the date they were going to reopen, but there's been no final decision. Uh, on on that so where's the where's the, the if, if they're all using science to make their decisions then they must be looking at different science uh yeah i'm going to take a couple of calls because i think we have uh listeners who feel pretty strongly about this norm in niagara falls hello norm hello libby 
How are you? I'm fine. Go ahead. All right, Libby, I agree with Bill. Okay. Worrisome, right? Uh, when I've been on, uh, let's say, Facebook and uh, they have the little polls, little surveys, I've been answering no from the start. Okay. And the fact that, let's say, the levels are rising on both sides of our side as well as their side as far as infections and that. I have, hmm, I, don't, I can't remember, I'm not sure if the word is sympathy or empathy for, you know, for the business people, right? But I also have patience, you know. Like, I'm being patient uh, in uh, regards to travel. I mean, I want to travel internationally to the Philippines. Norm, you're you're on the front lines in Niagara Falls. I mean, uh, I and this is presumably only for vaccinated travelers. I mean, your area would need this economically more than others. Okay, I agree. And I used to work uh, a couple of years ago. I retired from uh, working. I was working, uh, you know, in the tourist sector uh, on Clifton Hill. You know, Clifton Hill, or perhaps. But, uh, you know, I, as I say, I feel for them, but we still need to be uh, patient. Okay, the fully vaccinated need to be patient, just as, you know, they're, they're telling us that the fully vaccinated, when they're in group settings, uh, they need to be masked, right? Okay, I, I, you know, all right. Okay, People. Bill. Sorry, Norm. Thanks for your call. Yeah, I mean, uh, this is uh, something that I am getting here from people that I know is that even if they're fully vaccinated, even if they mask in public places, David, they're they're being cautious about what they're willing to do. Well, I think that 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 level of caution by individuals is completely understandable. And I think the government must be taking that into account in its strategy. I think everybody has to assess their own readiness, whether it's dealing with uh, somebody that uh, came across the border or somebody that just came into the building. Um, uh, I've been in a number of restaurants since since they were reopened. I won't say tons, but uh, several. And I don't know whether the guy at the next table uh, is vaccinated or not or whether he came from Downsview or from Detroit, you know, I mean, it's, 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 you make your own assessment. And I think those assessments are all reasonable. And I think I'm uh, sympathetic with our recent caller that, you know, you have to be patient and make your own decision. On the other hand, I have not heard a clear strategy from uh, the public health people or the government of what we're trying to accomplish. Fair enough. Uh, let's hear from a first time caller. Bob in Brampton. Hi, Bob. Good morning, or good afternoon, sorry. Good, good afternoon. Go ahead. Libby, I just have one question. I, I don't understand how we don't have a reciprocal arrangement where Canadians can go south. We're allowing the Americans to come into Canada, but not us. Uh, yeah, I think that was a surprise to a lot of people, and one of the explanations I heard was that you know, the, they, they have an issue with Mexico, so they don't want to discriminate. It didn't make a lot of sense. No, it doesn't make any sense at all. Uh, and are we checking that they're all fully vaccinated? Next, next question. Well, yeah, I mean, it's the Arrive Can app. And yes. I've, I've got to tell you that uh, my husband came back to the country probably like just when they started letting fully vaccinated people back. And uh, the that app worked, but they did not shut off the other apps that said, where are you? You're supposed to be quarantining. You need right. a, a third test. So I, I hope it's working better by now because it well, certainly, certainly wasn't. I hope so as well. But I just can't understand how we're being treated as a sort of a second-class nation in this whole border situation. Yeah, and it, uh, frankly, we're being treated that way, not just by the United States. You know, uh, also incomprehensible. Britain opened up to fully vaccinated American travelers, and the numbers are really bad in the States, but not exactly. Canadians. Exactly. Their vaccination rates are nowhere near what ours are. Right, and Take ours aren't big enough. States that are going crazy right now with excess vac- sick people. Absolutely. Anyway, that's my spiel for this morning and i thank you for chatting with me okay bob thanks um yeah 
Um, what do you think of that, David? We seem to be sort of last on everyone's list, even though, you know, relatively speaking, we're doing well. Well, I'm to that exact point, I, I saw an interesting thing this morning. Israel, which is held up as a model of um, successfully uh, handling this, they actually have a slightly higher rate of deaths per million than Canada, marginally higher, 708 for Canada, 725 per million for Israel. But they released a list of, they, they reduced the whole world to like three countries that do not have to quarantine when they enter Israel. And I think it was Which are? Republic and somebody, but Canada was not on that list, or so was the U.S. So our travelers are not allowed to go there without quarantine. Huh. Uh, they keep changing because just when they think they're done, and they thought they were <laughs> yeah. done at least twice, they keep getting spikes. Yes. And but, they've got third vaccines going now. Yeah, they, they, they are providing the booster shots. And out of the states, we've seen, uh, I think it was Fauci that said that booster shots for vulnerable or for older people are, are coming soon. Bill, are you hoping for booster shots here? Well, that seems to be the, uh, seems to be the indication. And the uh, medical experts that I've uh, spoken to are very much in, in favor of uh, that, that uh, uh, the most uh, vulnerable, they're, they're the ones that we're most concerned now will, will die from uh, COVID because of the rate of, uh, of vaccination. They say that uh, uh, they're expecting less and less people to be hospitalized. Uh, but when uh, members of the older, more vulnerable population uh, get COVID, then they're, uh, because with the variants, they're at a higher risk of, of dying. So the right answer seems to be uh, to get them that uh, third uh, third dose. But there's been no no actual activity or re- response from those really in charge saying that this is going to happen soon. Uh, yeah, David, I mean, you know, you're complaining about a lack of evidence, but what I'd like to see is some evidence about not if I'm assuming we're going to need booster shots, but what the interval is, and I haven't seen anything on that. Zero. And and to be clear, my complaint isn't about the lack of evidence. It's about the lack of a clear strategy that's got some... No, when What does victory look like? How will we know when we're there? What are we trying to do? If we're trying to reduce infections, never mind deaths, just infections, that's one strategy. If we're trying to reduce hospitalizations and flatten the curve, it seems that so far that's been happening. I have... I think I've referred in the past to a person I know who works at a major hospital, and she said that they're empty. There's five people in their ICU. They're not seeing as of today because those numbers are up a bit too. Well, but they're, they're but what's the why can't the Minister of Health say we have X thousand hospital beds in the entire province? It's a finite number. It's a knowable number. Here's how many are filled. I can Here's tell you. I can uh, tell, tell you that uh, in a minute. I think. Well. What's the goal, though? How many? How many is too many? What are we? I, I, I'm just. I think they just keep changing the goalposts, and that's what's confusing people. I'm not well, against David, there's, there's measures. I've been in favor of them. Uh, David, there's some suggestion uh, that the reason is, especially with a federal election uh, uh, coming up, that uh, they don't want to admit that this is going to be an ongoing issue. We're not going to conquer COVID. We're going to end up with vaccines and booster shops uh, forever, just like with the influ- influenza. Uh, but the government elected officials want to be able to declare a victory and have this over, and they now know they're not going to be able to do that, so they don't want to talk about booster shots. I think you're booster right. Shots I think you're right. Mean forever. And I think also you have uh, very different agendas from province to province and yes. from province to the feds. So, yes. So, uh, you know, even if you get an agenda, whose agenda is it? And um, once you admit that you can't solve it, now you're back to, well, at what price lockdowns? Well, yeah, I don't what, personally, yeah. I don't think that we are going to see any more lockdowns. That's just my opinion. But the question is, what are we going to get instead? And that's yes. a, a lot of what is, I mean, here in Ontario, as you know, David, the province is very resistant, A, to mandating vaccines for healthcare workers and education workers, and to vaccine passports, which businesses are clamoring for. 
For sure. What they are your thoughts that. on that? Well, they, they don't, but they're trapped in their own optics to a degree. They don't want to do this. But on the other hand, um, the numbers keep growing in, in one category. They're not willing to come out and say we're willing to tolerate these numbers growing because the deaths don't appear to be growing. That at least would be honest if they believe that. So you get this, you said it at the beginning, Libby, you get this mismatch of both both sides to the middle. I want to have, I want to be seen to be vigorously taking action. But on the other hand, I don't want to be really taking the economic hit anymore. So I'm going to kind of finesse both ends. And you wind up in this kind of fog where nobody's quite sure what the game plan is. Uh, Bill, uh, vaccine passports and mandatory vaccination for healthcare workers. Something that uh, CARP members have been saying they 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 want their their uh, they were initially shocked to find out that people could work in uh, facilities that looked after uh, older vulnerable people and that they didn't have to be uh, vaccinated. They had taken for granted that everyone uh, would be. So there there was has been a real reaction shock that uh, wasn't happened. And passports they're quite happy with. They they're telling us that there are rules about all other kinds of vaccinations when we uh, travel and when we move. And why wouldn't you want to be able to have a vaccine uh, passport? And that's something that we're expecting uh, uh, to see some kind of uh, vaccine uh, uh, passport. Uh, uh, Nova Scotia this weekend announced that they will be issuing uh, a, a document to all vaccinated people that they'll be able to use in case uh, this kind of vaccine passport is necessary. That's probably just the first step toward uh, it happening uh, everywhere. And the latest excuse from the Ontario government, which has said they're really against it, is that they don't want to have 13 different vaccine passports in Canada because that'll that'll cause chaos. David, what kind of an excuse is that? Well, I'm, I'm con- here again, the whole thing is confusing. Uh, and maybe it's just me, but both times that I got my shot, I got a little printout yep. with the date and the time and what are my left, left arm or right arm, what uh, vaccine it was. The dosage is a little printout they gave me, and I've scanned both of them and created a little PDF that I have. So if somebody wants to see proof that I've been vaccinated, I have the government's two little, I guess you could call them receipts, I suppose, but little proof thing that that exists already. So I don't see why they wouldn't want to just codify that and simplify that one step further. I don't I don't see why that's such a big bridge to cross. Well, uh, I think that what this government anyway is against is is uh, having uh, venues. I mean, I think they're they they're appeasing their anti-vaxxing base that you know, um, this would be used to get into wherever. I mean, New York City has said you can't you can't ha- dine indoors or go to a show without this. And I think that's what they don't want to support. But the passport itself uh, doesn't is neutral. It's just a statement of now. Now, what when you need to show that passport and the degree to which the government can dictate to businesses or to concerns uh, when you must show it and when you mustn't show it. And I mean, that's certainly up for grabs. I, I would assume a private individual could invite people over for dinner without requiring them to present their proof of vaccination um, without the government stepping in and forcing him to see that proof. A business, it might be something a little bit different. But uh, I, I think they're working really hard on a non-issue. I'm with Bill. It's a logical step. You've been given the vaccine. You've taken your shot. Why not be able to show that it happened? Well, exactly. That's what a lot of people are are saying. Um, But yeah, I mean, it's um, it seems to be a, a, and I think it's going to be a big election issue. Frankly, I don't. I don't uh, disagree. Actually, I think that uh, why shouldn't you be required to show? I mean, it's different if they're saying if unless you have a vaccine passport, we're going to put you in jail then that gets into individual health decisions and rights and so on. But if I'm willing to forego uh, visiting venues that require the passport to be displayed, if I'm willing to forego travel, um, I can recall many times in my lifetime having to show vaccines against a specific uh, 
disease or medical condition in order to be able to enter countries. You used to have to find out in order to get the visa. Sometimes you also have to get a vaccine against this or that kind of fever. Yeah, absolutely. And you, you, you presented your passport and they, they looked at the stamp and there was the vaccine stamp. And they let you into the country versus not letting you into the country. Well, there was even talk that, oh, um, the federal government will provide one for travel, but it won't be used for anything internal. And uh, it's interesting. There there are some business owners who are saying, you know, why I, they don't want to be the enforcer, that it would be better for them if the government made the rules. And as it is, there are businesses who are caught between a rock and a hard place, Right. Yeah. Um, they don't want to be the enforcer, but they have to provide a safe workplace, and uh, it's just a mishmash. It is completely a mishmash, and uh, I understand from the business point of view, but it, it doesn't seem like the burden is that onerous. If I'm the government, I'm saying I'm going to provide ID or a stamp or a certificate of something. Um, nobody's asking the businesses to enforce the process of vaccination itself. You just said, if you got your little stamp, you don't. Oh, sorry, you can't come in. Uh, Speaking of elections, Bill, there is an election underway in Nova Scotia. Are there any big Zoomer issues in that? Oh, there certainly are. Uh, There are three big uh, issues that the Nova Scotia chapter is concerned about. Uh, One of them is uh, attention to... uh, uh, home care and community care that's been ignored. And one of the reasons that, that Nova Scotia has had such huge problems in its long-term institutional care homes is there's not a good base of home care and uh, community care. The second area they're very concerned about is there is a move to get rid of a cap on house taxes that's been in place for many, many years. And if it was taken off completely, house taxes for many of our uh, Older members could increase by four and five times four four and five thousand percent more than four and five hundred percent more than they had been uh, they had been paying. So financial security is the the second issue. And interestingly enough, in Nova Scotia, concern about the environment and the uh, and the current government's lack of attention to promises they made four years ago to protect. Uh, uh, more uh, more uh, wildlands in uh, Nova Scotia have not been kept. So those are the three that our Nova Scotia chapter are particularly focusing on well, right, it, right now. Interesting in terms of uh, home care and the costs. Last week, I talked to the parliamentary budget officer and he came out with some numbers on what it would take just to make some improvements to the current systems, the ones that everyone has been talking about and that certainly the government here says is underway, but not with uh, anything like the dollars that he mentioned. And he was talking about an additional $13.7 billion annually, of which it would take more than five, I think $5.2 billion for home care. Uh, you know, those numbers are pretty staggering, David. Is that that's federal? Yeah, well, it's federal, but the the money would come from mostly from the provinces. It's right, the, right, but the the amount of the outlay, yeah, I, it, I understand. across the country. Well, the option is to fight a battle, a demographically losing battle, which we already know is going to be a losing battle, to create more beds. Um, they will create more beds, but they're never going to keep up with the fact that we have more people for the first time in Canadian history over the age of 60 than under the age of 15, and we're just getting started. So the demand for good long-term solutions, and I'm using long-term as an adjective here generally, encompass both home care and institutional care, the balance has to shift toward home care, and in the end, that investment will be a savings over what it's going to cost if they're trying to solve it, you know, by a race with bricks and mortar, because they're not going to be able to solve it ever. Right. But uh, I, I mean, who knows if that money will come and, and it, it probably wouldn't be enough, uh, Bill, for the home care well, portion. It, 
that's true. Uh, and and but David's absolutely uh, right. We have we're to have more and more people that we have to look after, and it's less expensive to look after them in their own home in their own community than it is to build uh, uh, new long term beds uh, for them. Uh, and part of the uh, the answer in improving home and community care is improving current systems. Not uh, not everything is uh, new. Some of it is very clearly just having uh, systems and and having uh, the, the the kind of uh, help that's available uh, to people known to them and available right across the uh, the country, right across the province, where everybody can uh, access it who needs it. Well, I'm about to sit down and write a column on home care, which I received. Received and uh, you know I'm I got great care, but uh, spent a huge amount of time and energy making sure they didn't cut it, right? Which right. Uh, and I just despair that there is so much administration in the system. I don't see how it's ever going to get fixed because it's very partisan. I mean, and this is, we have to wrap things up. It's very partisan. And yes, the money would be distributed differently depending on, on where you stand, but, but not to the people who need it, to the people who run it. That's exactly what we're hearing from our uh, members, uh, Libby, is, is what you've just outlined. Yes. Okay. Got to wrap things up on that note. Thank you so much, Bill Van Gorder and David Kravitz. Thank you, Libby. Thanks, Bill. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye. Okay, people, we've got to take a break. When we come back, I'll be talking to the Ontario Liberal leader, Stephen Del Duca. Hang in. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Well, there is no question the topic of mandatory vaccines at the top of the political agenda. Last week, Ontario NDP leader Andrea Horvath faced a barrage of criticism, including from inside her own party when she disagreed with it, and she backtracked and apologized. So now... Both opposition parties favor it for health care and education workers. And uh, does that cut into liberal ownership of a popular issue? And we're seeing some interesting comings and goings as the liberals prepare for both federal and provincial elections. I'd like to welcome Ontario Liberal leader Stephen Del Duca. Hello, Stephen. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me back on, Libby. I appreciate it. Okay. Well, first of all, uh, and we will be dealing with this more in depth. Um, yesterday, the former Premier Bill Davis died at the age of 92. And, right. uh, you know, he presided over a very different kind of politics, more collegial, less partisan. Um, it, it, does this, I mean, that has passed in this province. What are your thoughts on that? <laughs> Well, first of all, let me say, uh, obviously, my condolences to Mr. Davis's family and closest friends. You know, I I came of age politically a little bit after he left office, but obviously, he he was a, a persona, an individual who trans, who you know, right up you know to this day transcends uh, you know uh, transcends the years in, in many respects. He whether it's the community college system or it's a whole series of TVO. I mean, there's just a long, long list of things that. He was able to do largely by consensus, not exclusively, but largely by consensus. He had to work through minority legislatures to get stuff done. Uh, from all accounts, a very decent individual, obviously very committed to his family. So, yeah, you know, it is it's, it, the way politics was done in the 70s and 80s, obviously, is different from today. It doesn't mean that we can't work hard to restore some civility and collegiality. As Barack Obama once said, we can disagree without being disagreeable. <laughs> well, they we certainly should... can't over there. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that's something we should aspire to, though. And I, I think that the people in this province and beyond would, would appreciate that. But again, condolences to Mr. Davis's family and friends. Okay. Um, well, moving on to what I was talking about at first, uh, you've come out in favor of mandatory vaccination for healthcare and education workers. Yeah. Uh, you were the first party to do it. Um, you were on an interview with Andrea Horvath. She disagreed, took a hit because of that, and then backtracked. So what do you make of that? Yeah, listen, I was I was really proud as Ontario Liberal Party leader. It was two weeks ago today that I made the announcement that I felt that there should be mandatory vaccinations for 
frontline workers in education and healthcare. To me, it, it's the reasonable and responsible thing to do. You've heard me talk on your program previously about my daughters who are in the publicly funded education system. My wife and I discussed what September is going to look like for them. It just seems it just seems so reasonable to expect that if they're over 12, they get vaccinated, that their teachers will be vaccinated. The fact that we don't know, the fact that it's unclear, that there's nobody tracking this information, especially after what we've gone through during COVID is just completely, well, frankly, it's completely insane to me. It makes no sense whatsoever. And look, what happened last week with Andrea Horvath, I'm glad that she's now seen the light and come to the right side of the issue. She, you know, it took her some time. It took her far longer than it should have. I, you know, I don't know how reliable her instincts are on issues like this, but she's there now. And so we're going to keep, certainly liberals will keep pushing. And I, I hope, I hope Doug Ford sees the light. It's never the wrong time to do the right thing. Uh, what do you make of his opposition? I mean, you know, frankly, we keep hearing that a big part of his base is anti-vax, but, uh, you know, that's not what got him a majority government. And, and every poll you see, the majority of people are in favor of this. And it's, I think it's, it's an issue that could really hurt a politician. Uh, I, I think so, too. It, for sure, I do believe he is trying to cater to that, that part of Ontario that is vehemently anti-vaxxer, that, uh, you know, for a limited time, both he and Andrea Horvath were, now only he is. And I think that is part of his political calculation. But it just seems to me, again, with all the lessons we should have learned during COVID, with all of the tragedy and all of the loss of li- life and loss of livelihood, it's just there should be lessons that we learn as a result of this and being responsible and reasonable, being competent, deciding to side with the science and do the right thing. I would have hoped that Doug would have learned that lesson. It doesn't seem like he has. Uh, you know, I, I don't think people in the province appreciate the position that he's taken, but I'm sure he and his campaign team have done their calculus and this is where they've landed. Um one of the things that you did say about this uh, uh, kind of had me scratching my head. You said you don't want it to be punitive and nobody should lose their job. But if you've got a nurse, say, or, you know, somebody who works hands on with patients in a hospital and they refuse to be vaccinated, how do you how do they keep their job? Yeah, I know for sure. It's a great point. So what we said from day one was, and I, and I stand by this, I don't believe it needs to be punitive. I think we do need to respect the human rights code, for example. So if there's an individual, whether they're in a school or in a hospital or a doctor's office or a long-term care home, and for example, they, they themselves have a pre-existing medical condition. I'm not uh, talking think, about that. I'm talking about someone who refuses to be vaccinated yeah, so and, I, I, and their yeah, job involves so, hands-on. Yeah, so in that that case, you work with their employer. If they're represented by a union, you work with their union. And maybe you redeploy them to a place where they're not patient-facing or student-facing. I think there's lots of creativity about how we could deal with that. But here's the really really, uh, bizarre part to me, Libby. We don't know right now in Ontario. When I went for both my shots in New York region, nobody asked me what I do for a living. The, The government's not tracking right now what healthcare workers have the vaccinations or what education workers have the vaccinations. And to me, that's also uh, ridiculous at this point, uh, at this point of this pandemic. They don't even know. They should have been tracking this from day one so that we'd be ready to go. Even if Doug Ford woke up tomorrow morning and did the right thing, how would we find out quickly who's gotten the dose and who doesn't have the dose, given, given the nature of the work they do? So the whole thing has just been completely mishandled from day one. Well, I think some of them would know because of the particular hospital systems. But, uh, yeah, I guess there's no central uh, registry. Uh, And, again, uh, I don't know how many non-patient-facing jobs there are for, say, nurses in a hospital setting. Well, listen, there actually are quite a few. If you think about the virtual consults that now take place for nurse practitioners and doctors, There's lots of ways to get through this to the other side. But my point about not tracking is you ask the question, how does the person not lose their job? But but today we don't know if it's 90% of nurses, so we're talking about 10%, or if it's 98%, or if it's 75%. So when I talk about finding roles to redeploying where they're not patient-facing, we don't know if we're talking about 100 individuals or 5,000 individuals. And I'm just using those numbers as proxies. And that's the problem with the way that Doug Ford's government's approached this from day one. And what about vaccine passports? Yeah, I am 100. I've said this again two weeks ago. I'm 100% on board with vaccine certificates. Again, it, you, you, 
we need something trustworthy, something reliable. So we're all on a level playing field. Uh, it's what other provinces are, are doing or looking at. It's what other parts of the world are doing. And, and we hear Doug Ford and some of his ministers say, well, it's the federal government's responsibility. We don't want this. We, but it's time to show that responsible leadership after the 17 months that we've, the last 17 months we've all lived through, which has been brutal. Surely you'd want to use every tool in the toolkit to make sure that if there's going to be a fourth wave here in Ontario, that it's as minimal as possible. And again, uh, for some strange reason, Doug doesn't want to do it. I would if I was premier today. Uh, but and I'm going to keep pushing him again to do the right thing. Uh, the former Liberal Finance Minister of Ontario, Charles Souza, who is a, a regular panelist of mine, uh, made up what I thought was a really interesting suggestion, and that is indemnifying employers who are now left to make their own vaccination policies in the workplace, indemnifying them against human rights uh, 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 challenges uh, in terms of a vaccine policy. What do you think of that? I mean, I think that's something that we could take a look at in theory. I think it would be a little bit complicated, but again, I'm open to that concept. But this is this goes right to the heart of why we need a certificate that is province-wide, it is standard, it is reliable, uh, so that we're not, you know, we're not kind of in this position where two side-by-side small businesses might have to do different things, might be exposed in different ways. Uh, certain hospitals like UHN are, are pursuing one course. Other universities and colleges are doing different things. Regular, everyday people are completely confused about what they have to show, when they have to show it. This is why we need that responsible leadership coming from Queen's Park. And so, again, I want to keep saying this because it's true. I do genuinely hope that Doug Ford sees the light on this stuff and does the right thing. Failing that, we'll keep pushing for it. We'll we'll keep looking for creative solutions. Do you think it'll still be a big issue come uh, the next provincial election in June? I mean, in many respects, of course, I hope it's not because I want us so badly to be to the other side and on the other side safely of this pandemic. But whether or not these specifics are uh, are hot issues during the election campaign, I think what's what's just behind the issues, which is the style of leadership that I would hope to bring versus that of both Doug Ford and Andrea Horvath, I think there's a lot of the values that I hold dear that I'm hoping to bring forward during the campaign that I think will stand in stark contrast to both Doug and Andrea on issues like this and so many others, and I'm looking forward to that conversation. Uh, last week, we learned uh, that one of the doctors who's been very vocal is running for a liberal nomination. That's Nathan Stahl. And I had right. fully expected to see doctors running for politics, though I didn't think he'd be the first one or that provincial nomination would be the first one. So, uh, first of all, uh, tell me a little bit. Did you recruit him? Do you consider him a star candidate? I, I had a, I've had a few conversations with Nathan. I think he had come to a, a point where he had realized, based on his expertise and what he was seeing around decision-making, uh, much of what, you know, much of it's on, on sort of his public record. He realized that, you know, it's one thing to criticize. It's one thing to be constructively critical. But when you feel strongly enough about something, you need to step up. And, and, in, and in this case, you know, he's putting his name on a ballot to become an Ontario Liberal Party candidate. And I hope more like Nathan, more women and men do come forward, not just for the Ontario Liberal Party, but for all political parties. We need to once again kind of capture this notion that we value knowledge and we value expertise uh, here in the province. And so especially coming out of a pandemic, I hope more uh, people with a background in science and healthcare come forward to say, we want to make positive change. We want real progress in this province. I think Nathan's a great candidate. Uh, you know, we have close to 50 women and men. We've dominated province-wide. Lots of people with educational expertise, lots of people with healthcare expertise. Uh, should he become an Ontario Liberal Party candidate later this summer, he will make a really, really strong addition to our team. Is he going to be acclaimed? Uh, you know, I don't have the, the latest details. I don't know uh, in Toronto, St. Paul's, but I believe the nomination is being called for uh, or will be called soon for later later this month. I believe it is. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, so you, are you busy recruiting other candidates? Absolutely. It is something that's part of uh, part of my schedule on a regular basis. The good news for us as a party is that, you know, we have 124 ridings across the province. More than 500 women and men have, have sought the papers that are required to be completed before you can run for a nomination. So tons of interest. Uh, we're up to about 50 candidates nominated so far. More than 60% of those candidates are female. That's a commitment that I was a really, uh, it was really important to me to make sure we had gender parity. 
Uh, we're going to have gender parity. We're going to have lots of young, young, new talent coming to our team. And so, yeah, I'm, I, I spend a lot of time trying to recruit candidates. The good news is we have lots to pick from because people are very keen. And what, what about the federal election? We expect any minute. And we also just heard that uh, three Liberal MPs won't be running again. How does that impact you? Well, look, I, I, I've been involved in the provincial and federal party for many, many years now. I, when I was running for leader of the Ontario Liberal Party during the last federal campaign, I was out to more than 70 federal ridings across this province to knock on doors for federal Liberal candidates. I am looking forward to being out strongly in support of federal candidates again this time around. I think the stakes are really high on the kind of economy we want to build together, provincially and federally, the fight against the climate crisis and so much more. And so I, I am looking forward to being engaged in that campaign at a grassroots level. And I know Ontario Liberal Party candidates will be out in force helping federal Liberal candidates right across Ontario. And, you know, I think I think it's a good precursor to what we're going to see in Ontario next year in terms of the kind of ideas that will come forward, the, the different directions for this country and this province that will be discussed. And I'm very excited about what we're going to see federally and what I anticipate we'll see next year in Ontario. OK, Stephen Del Duca, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks, Libby. I really appreciate it. You take care. You too. Bye bye. We are taking another break. When we come back, we will talk about the legacy of the former Premier Bill Davis. We'll have that when we return. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Bland Works. That was the motto of former Premier Bill Davis, who was a towering figure here in Ontario. He was Premier for 14, 13, excuse me, 13 of the 42-year lock the Progressive Conservative Party had on this province, and he created our community college system, founded four new universities, and created the first Ministry of the Environment. His nickname was Brampton Bill, and he was especially known for his collegial approach to politics. I know that a lot of people in our audience will remember him and his reign quite clearly. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. I'd like to welcome Hugh Siegel, who is a former chief of staff to Bill Davis, and Patrick Brown, the current mayor of Brampton. Thank you for being with us. Hello. Hello. Hi there, Louie. Hi. So let us begin with Hugh Siegel. So how did you come to be his chief of staff? Well, it's a very short and interesting story. Um, when the government had its election of 1975 and went from majority to minority, there was nobody who worked at Queen's Park or the Conservatives who had any history at all of ever being involved with minority government. And I had just finished two years as legislative assistant to the leader of the opposition in Ottawa, Mr. Stanfield, who had to face the Trudeau minority government between 1972 and 74. So they were desperate for someone who had that kind of practical experience. And that's how I was first offered the job to join his staff. Okay, that's interesting. And Patrick Brown, uh, you're a young fella. So what was your first contact with Bill Davis? Well, I first met Bill Davis as a a fan from afar attending uh, events that he had spoken at. Uh, But it was only when I got in the provincial legislature that uh, I got to know him on a more personal level because I sought his, his advice and guidance uh, when we were trying to um, rebuild the Progressive Conservative Party and, and bring it back to the Davis uh, roots. Uh, and I would go up to his cottage to, to, to get his counsel. And now more recently, as mayor of, of, of Brampton, of course, um, he's beloved in Brampton and and his uh, friendship and advice uh, on a municipal level have have, have meant the world. Uh, and I really believe he is the the bar, the gold standard when it comes to public service. And so I, like many, have tried to uh, learn from a man who simply is uh, a statesman and a gentleman and um, one that I don't think we'll ever see like him again. 
Hugh, you were talking about being able to negotiate a minority government. Now, do you think that was part of the reason uh, for his collegial approach, or was was that his kind of natural bent anyway? I think his natural bent was to look for a way for disparate groups to work together. Um, and even though he was a proud member of the Progressive Conservative Party and knew how to get elected and to defend the partisan interest, he always understood that the broad interest of the province and of the country actually came first. So whether it was making minority government work between 1975 and 1981, getting elected several times, making the last minority between 77 and 81 last a whole four years, or whether it was the tremendous work he did in 1981 and 82 to bring parties together so we would be able to repatriate Canada's constitution and have a charter of rights and freedoms. Um, it all spoke to that same decent Brampton hometown view that when you get people working together and you look beyond the differences to the things that unite us, we actually make much more progress together as a political party, as a community, as a province and as a country. And that really defined everything he did. Uh, Patrick, uh, what did he teach you about Brampton? And Brampton, of course, today is a very, very different place than when he was Brampton Bill. Well, he was fiercely proud of his Brampton roots, living on Main Street for all 92 years of his life. Uh, There was no more efficient encyclopedia of Brampton knowledge than uh, the former premier, and he loved the city. And he, as I go to events in the city and meet businesses, everyone has a Bill Davis story, whether it's uh, the Ryerson expansion that's happening right now. They were telling me they first got interested in Brampton because of a phone call from Bill Davis. Businesses throughout the city tell us it was it was Bill Davis that called the first owner of the company and convinced them to come to Brampton. He, it very much is the city that, that, that he has built. Uh, but, but if I could share one story, you know, because I think it speaks to, to who the premier was. Recently, I went with him to get his COVID-19 vaccine shot, and he was uh, frail. He was um, not walking as gingerly as uh, he would have before. And in that, in that uh, vaccination center, um, despite the fact his body was failing him, he wanted to walk up to every vaccinator um, and thank them for what they were doing for the community. He wanted. He walked up to the police officers and thanked them for their service. And he would actually ask them where they lived. And if they said Brampton, he said good. And if they if they didn't, or if they weren't from Brampton, then he would tell them they should move here. So you know, even at ninety two, he was uh, uh, passionate about his city. Uh, and and Hugh, I mean, he's been called the father of modern Ontario, and and the province has really changed certainly in terms of participation of women, in terms of diversity. I mean, you know, in his time, a lot of politics was still the preserve of uh, basically uh, white Anglo-Saxon men. You're right about that, Libby. And one of the interesting things which I think distinguishes those who are in public life who make a constructive contribution from those who make a really, really compelling contribution is the ability on the part of those in leadership positions to anticipate change and to put processes in place that will actually make the management and encouragement of that change more feasible and more humane. So just as you mentioned, the first ministry of the environment uh, in North America, he also um, was very much in support of um, multiculturalism, citizenship, and citizenship and multiculturalism was a creation of his government, which was to make people of different backgrounds, ethnic origins, different races and colors, feel more comfortable in Ontario and let them know that Ontario was a place they could build their lives. He established the first advisory council on the status of women of any Canadian province long before Uh, The issue of um, women's rights and equality was a regular part of our day-to-day discussion. So he was uh, was quite able to get ahead of the term. And and I want to be honest, and uh, and his worship will remember this from his active days in the party. Not everybody in the party uh, would have been enthusiastic about that measure of change. But he argued always 
that you have to get ahead of things. You have to make sure that you look down the road and around the corner and not just to what's going on now. And that would be his definition, the difference between a simple conservative who is pretty well interested in keeping things going the way they are versus a progressive conservative who believes you have to think about what progress will look like and how it will be fair to everybody if you're going to be able to justify that PC moniker. Uh, Patrick Brown, you also turned to him for advice at a time in your life that was uh, a very difficult time and a, a crisis time. How did he help you there? Well, I certainly wouldn't be Mayor Brampton today if it wasn't for his friendship and, and support. You know, he uh, told me to keep my chin up, and uh, when you get knocked down, you get back up. And uh, just, um, you know, I, I owe a, a great deal to his kindness and, and, and his support. And, you know, what was fascinating about the former Premier is that it was never about him. He always wanted to help others. You know, we we recently wanted to build a statue in his honor in in Brampton, and he didn't want the attention. He said, "I've already had enough uh, accolades." And grudgingly, we got his agreement to build a statue. But a public servant who wasn't looking for attention is is almost unheard of. You know, the first call I got from his mayor of Brampton, and I owed him a great deal. He could have called me about anything. It was he was in a shop in Caledon, and he met. Um, a Nigerian Canadian, a new Canadian who was struggling um, writing his exams uh, to become a transit operator. And he called me and said, he comes from a good family, and I talked to his wife and his kids in the store. Uh, can you give him some advice on um, how he can do better um, to, to, to become a transit operator? Just someone he met in a store. This is a former premier of Ontario who meets a stranger in the store and just wants to help them. Um, and I'm sure, as I'm sure Hugh can attest, because no one knows him as well as 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 Hugh. Um, he he did that for everyone he, he he met. And I should say it's a privilege to be on this call with with Hugh Siegel because the Davis family told me uh, that um, it was Hugh Siegel that you know during COVID that kept the premier entertained with regular phone calls. And um, you know I I, I feel there's a um, Hugh Siegel was one of the individuals that the premier actually truly loved, and um, that that says a lot. Okay, we are uh, just about out of time. I'm going to try to take a very quick call from Rudy in Toronto. Yeah, Rudy, hi, I'll tell you quickly. I, I didn't like Bill Davis uh, first. Uh, the the first uh, um, and, um, notice I, I got about him was that he stopped the Spine Expressway, which I didn't like because I was uh, with, uh, with people that wanted the, the thing built. Uh, but he was uh, um, he was decent enough to meet with uh, our committee called uh, Go Spadina. And it was it was run by Aster Shiner, and uh, it was a nice uh, having a meeting with him. At least he heard our views. And then uh, actually later on, I began to realize that uh, the guy was probably right. Uh, there we, we didn't need that expressway uh, cutting through our, our city. And uh, as an environmentalist, I couldn't have supported it anyway. So that's how I, I just wanted to let you know how I changed my opinion about him. And I and I admired him very much after that. Okay, great, Rudy. Thank you. And we are totally out of time. Thank you so much for sharing your memories, Hugh Siegel and Patrick Brown. Appreciate Thank it. Thank you. Great Thank you. And that's all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.